Welcome to Willoughby Hills. I'm Heath Rosella. Welcome to another episode. I'm here. I'm doing it. Let's go. Andrew Leland is my guest today. Andrew's a writer, a journalist, an audio producer, a podcast host. He's done a little bit of everything, and he's got a great new book out. I want you to go check it out. It's called The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight. And it was a really interesting read for me. I got to be honest, I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed this conversation with Andrew today. So when Andrew was a teenager, he started to notice that he was having trouble seeing at night when his friends weren't having trouble. So he went to an eye doctor and had some tests done, ended up getting diagnosed with a condition called retinitis pigmentosa, which is abbreviated as RP often. It's a degenerative eye disease that ultimately ends in blindness. Although for Andrew, it's been a 20 plus year journey of losing his sight. He is classified as legally blind. He still has some vision left, but was born sighted and lived for a good portion of his life sighted until his vision started dropping off. So the book is partially a memoir exploring that whole experience. But then it also becomes this bigger exploration of what is our relationship as a society to blindness. And I think what I liked about this book, too, is it made me reconsider my own thoughts on disability and and marginalized groups in general. You know, at one point, and we'll talk about this today as well, but Andrew draws a comparison between other social justice movements, whether that's racially motivated ones or sexuality motivated, you know, LGBTQ, things like that, and disability rights activism. There's a lot of common threads in all those stories, and there's a lot of places where it's been a different experience based on what you're fighting for. I also really enjoyed talking to Andrew as a fellow media professional. You know, he, as I said at the beginning there, has been an audio producer and a podcast host and a writer, a journalist, kind of all these different hats that I've worn at various points too. him more accomplished than I am in some of these areas. I mean, I'm still producing this little podcast by myself in my attic uh, and Andrew produced and hosted the show The Organist for KCRW and has done some other awesome audio projects as well. So uh, certainly more knowledgeable than me and and more accomplished, but there was a lot of interesting kind of similarities of just our perspectives on where the media business is in 2023, what it means to be a media professional these days, and how the skills that I think, for me at least, I was always taught were a discrete set of skills. I was a TV producer. I went to TV school and have a degree in TV production. It transfers really well. You know, I'm writing stuff now that's getting published and I'm, I'm producing this podcast. I've been doing this for three years and it's just kind of wild, like how much of my producing background relies on all of that. It's very, very related in ways that Andrew kind of helped me realize. So that was cool. And speaking of the podcast, one of the other things that is just awesome is how I got connected to Andrew. I've just got to tell this story real quick because I I could never have anticipated when I launched this podcast sort of all the different ways that things would overlap and and come together. I had heard about Andrew's book a few months ago and had considered him as a guest on the show. And then just I I didn't end up reaching out. (laughs) I didn't end up reading his book at the time. 
I just had a lot of other things on my plate and other guests that had had confirmed. And then I was talking to Rebecca Claren after I interviewed her a few episodes ago, and she had just gotten back from the Texas Book Festival, I think it was, Texas Book Fair, something like that. She had been in Texas, and Andrew had also appeared there. And they had been talking and she just, she said, you've got to meet Andrew. I think he'd be awesome. And I think he'd be a great guest on your show. So I reached out to him and he was very gracious and said, yes, we picked a time. And it's all because Rebecca Claren happened to be this kind of common point for both of us, which is interesting. And I didn't know Rebecca before she was on the podcast either. So just, it's kind of one of those things that you never know how things are going to connect and where they're going to come together. And I'm just, I'm so grateful for this strange experience of three and a half years of hanging out in my attic and getting to talk to amazing people like Andrew. But don't forget, the podcast is not the only thing that I put out into the world. I also publish a newsletter twice a week, every Wednesday and every Sunday. You can go to heathrasella.com slash newsletter to get your name and your email on the list. It is a free thing. You can subscribe to it for free. And you will also get alerted to every new podcast episode when it comes out. If you want to support the work that I do, if you like this podcast, if you love this podcast, if you're really a fan of it and have been listening for a long time, or if you just found it, this is the first episode. Welcome, by the way. But if you want to support what I'm doing and support the newsletter, you can also sign up for a paying subscription, help underwrite some of the costs of of making this show and, and writing this newsletter. And you also will get early access to the podcast as well. So heathrasala.com slash newsletter free subscription, paid subscription, whatever works for you. I appreciate it all. I am happy to have you. com slash newsletter. All right, let's get into it. Here it is, my conversation with Andrew Leland. So I guess I want to start with just the book and its reception into the world. Uh, it came out in July and I was looking over just some of the press that you've done prior to <laughs> coming on this little podcast. I mean, you talked to Mark Maron, you talked to Terry Gross, like a lot of really positive uh, reception for the book. What has been kind of your reaction to how it's been received in the world? It's been amazing. I, you know, I, I think having worked in publishing, you know, working with writers, knowing writers, uh, I've seen the whole gamut from, you know, a book that you spend years on and it comes out and it feels like the world doesn't notice to, you know, 10 times what I've experienced. And so I just tried to really manage my expectations and try to disentangle my own feelings about the book from how people might respond. You know, I mean, that, that's not to say that I wasn't interested or excited about it, but, you know, in the same way that I think one can approach, for instance, like money uh, and the value of one's work, yeah. you know, I tried to recognize the importance of <laughs> of audience and of of press, but also like kind of detach from it as much as I could. Yeah. Taking the press piece out of it, then what has the reaction been from just everyday readers? What kinds of things are you hearing? What kinds of emails are you getting? Things like that. One thing that a lot of people say, which I really love to hear is like, I learned a lot. But, you know, I think there is some real value in a book that touches on a lot of material that even people who have like worked in the blindness field, for instance, like working for uh, organizations that support blind people, blind people themselves, you know, I think it's just an understudied subject. And to that end, it's been really encouraging to hear people say that, that they learn things, even if, even, you know, from the expert to people who, who really haven't considered blindness at all. Uh, So that's been probably my favorite comment. 
Yeah. I mean, it was interesting to me even just in thinking of how I wanted to describe what I got out of the book. And I kept going to terms like, oh, it was very eye-opening or, you know, <laughs> like, and then I immediately caught myself and was like, mm. oh, wait a second. Like, that's kind of part of the whole premise of the book, too. But, like, what's interesting is just kind of that that duality, I guess, of, like, blindness as a disability, as a life-defining thing, but also as kind of a neutral characteristic and that it can yeah. it can live in both of those worlds at the same time. Yeah, no, I think you've hit on the kind of central tension that I was wrestling with in writing the book and, you know, frankly, still wrestling with, I think, just in my day-to-day understanding of my own experience of blindness, uh, my own relationship to it, and, you know, being an ongoing process as I continue to lose vision. And that's 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 something that is not fixed, I don't think. You know, I think one's relationship to one's blindness, as it, with one's relationship to, you know, one's gender, one's race, uh, one's nationality, you know, these are things that in certain moments can feel central and feel like the most important thing about us. And then yeah. other moments, it's like, I'm not eating this salad as an American, right? I'm just like, just, <laughs> right. just having lunch. Right. Uh, and I think blindness is the same way. Yeah. Um, let's go back to kind of just the motivations behind the book and like when you decided to write it. And I know you talk in the book about it started as kind of an audio project and then morphed into a book. Like, mm. just walk me through sort of where the seeds of this were planted and, and how it became what it became. Yeah. I mean, so I was diagnosed with RP or retinitis pigmentosa as a teenager, you know, so I've known about what was coming for a long time. I'm almost 43 now. And for most of my life, as I write in the book, it was really abstract. Yeah. I worked for the Believer magazine as an editor, you know, so I was very involved in like sort of arts and culture, uh, you know, it's an arts and culture magazine. So I was, you know, just involved in that world. And then I I did a podcast called The Organist. It was like a pub- public radio podcast. I was also very arts and culture oriented. So that was really my life. And it was really about 10 years ago that I was making the podcast and I was teaching in an English department or a journalism department and blindness had sort of caught up with me to the point where it was no longer abstract and it was no longer distant. And, you know, I still saw a lot and I still see a lot, yeah. but you know, I needed to use a white cane. And, and that was really the turning point was the cane because the cane instantly marks you as blind and instantly changes the way that people treat you mm. and uh, changes the way I see myself. You know, it's a way, it's a kind of a, there's a performance aspect to it. Like, so there's a different way I'm presenting myself to the world. And then in turn, the world is receiving me differently. Yeah. And, and that was so hard, but also so interesting that I really think that the writing of the book, you know, if not literally is sort of like, intellectually started there because I realized in that moment that it was not just this sort of personal difficulty that I was going through, but that it was connecting to histories and to bigger arguments about identity and performance and um, disability and masculinity and gender, uh, all these other places that the book ends up taking me, I think sort of found their seed there. So then I, I wrote a couple of pieces for my podcast, The Organist, and then I did a piece for another podcast, 99% Invisible, and you know, wrote a magazine story. And then I felt this momentum where I was like, okay, this is actually like a method that works where it's like, there's I frame it with my own experience, but I don't stay there. It's not in and of itself a personal essay. Like It's really like my personal experience of whatever it is, starting to use a cane, learning Braille, is this outward pointing vector that, that takes me off and running into a surprising new place. 
I mean, you write uh, towards the end of the book, actually, at some point, I began to think of the process of writing this book, like the process of gradual vision loss itself, as a journey that starts in the shallow end of blindness and moves by icy degrees into the deep end. Like that, to me, was a metaphor for the entire book, too, that, as you say, like it starts as this very personal memoir, and it's kind of you understanding and, and coming to terms with what it means to be blind and how you want to define yourself relative to that. But then, yeah, it starts taking on these other social issues and these much bigger questions that, frankly, in the first third of the book, I didn't expect <laughs> you to get there and was pleasantly <laughs> surprised when all of a sudden I'm reading about you know, civil rights movements and sort of where the intersection between race and gender and disability all come in. It seems like the writing process mirrored your own experience as well with that, right? Of just like you start in one place and then as you start kind of researching one thing, it just, it, uh, it ripples out, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the real gifts that an opportunity to write a book like this gave me is that not only did I have the the chance to sort of wrap my arms around this subject that was that just felt so intractable and messy and difficult, but it, you know it gave me the time to revise, which any writer will tell you is you know a, a crucial part of the process. And, and I think sure. it was in that revision process where I really started to kind of think about you know what fit where and like what thought led to the next thought. And I remember I had this early meeting with my editor, and she told me to bring an outline to our meeting. And it was kind of like a, like, I felt like the Unabomber a little bit. Cause like I, you know, at the time, <laughs> you know, I, I printed things out in like 18 point font. So it was like a very yeah. long document. And she looked at it and like in a very gracious way, but also kind of pointed was like, this isn't an outline. And I realized it was, and I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is sort of like every thought I've ever had about blindness, you know, but that was like, <laughs> that was sort of like a necessary starting point for me. It was really just like, eh, I had a lot of thoughts about blindness, you know? And then it yeah. was this really, this like iterative process of refinement where it's like, okay, well, which ones are actually interesting? Which ones are actually relevant? Which ones actually fit? You know, and and really from the beginning up until, you know, it was time to really let go and send it off. There was just constant process of, of reorganizing and reshaping and cutting to get to that place where my own personal story felt like it could be organically threaded through with all of these histories and arguments and politics and, and all that other material. Sure. I mean, part of the personal piece of it, too, is just when you're a journalist or, or an author like this, you get access to worlds that you might not otherwise have. Mm. Like, just generally, that's a thing that happens that, you know, you, you call up somebody and they say, oh, let me take you here. And you're all of a sudden on this weird journey that you never expected. Like, for you, you get that already. But the fact that it's a personal subject matter, too, like, I guess I wonder, like, would you have gone to a, a convention for blind people or would you have gone to the training center that you went to or, you know, things like that that came about because of the book? Like, I feel like they changed your own quality of life and your own thoughts about what you were going through. But I wonder if they would have happened separate from this book. That's a really important observation. You know, and in some ways, I think it it really ties the book to this cultural moment of, you know, I think a lot of people are thinking about who gets to tell the stories of marginalized groups. And one of the things that I recognized early on in the process was my position, not just as somebody who's legally blind or visually impaired or whatever you want to call it, but as someone who grew up in the sort of mainstream, uh, very privileged position, becoming blind. And that kind of, I think, gave me a really unique perspective and an ability to pull the average reader in and say like, okay, I'm just like you, but now 
I'm going to like draw you through this experience in a way that I think would have been a lot harder if I had been either, you know, born blind and sort of like already been through my blindness journey in some ways and kind of like come to terms with it and was just telling that story. Or conversely, if I was not disabled and I like had a blind parent or a blind child or like, you know, some intimate relationship with blindness, but was still kind of outside of the experience in that way. Right. So I really wanted, you know, I really explicitly capitalized on that. You can look at that in a crass way. Like I was like, cashing in on it. But, you know, I think I, I, I saw it more as like a, yeah, like a generative opportunity to really make a book that didn't exist. That I hadn't seen a book like that before. Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting too, because a lot of what I think you grapple with in the book is this feeling of imposter syndrome that like, because mm-hmm. you still have some residual vision and you you were born sighted, like you have a different experience than other blind people might. And I guess that was an observation too, was just as you start talking to all these different people, they're different experiences. Like it's easy for, for a sighted person to walk down the street and see someone with a white cane and say, Oh, that's a blind person. Mm -hmm. But to not know the circumstances of were they born that way? Was it an accident? Was it a disease? You know, what brought them to that point? And everybody has, has a different journey, but yeah, it was interesting just to feel you wrestle with like, am I blind enough? in yeah. writing this book, right? I still wrestle with that. You know, I mean, and that, you know, to, to your question about like the, the book's reception in the press, you know, I catch myself feeling like a blind spokesperson, you know, and like, I'm, I'm really representing blindness on this national platform. And yet here I am like looking at stuff all the time. Right. And one <laughs> yeah. thing that I think has really, I mean, there's been a number of things that I think work against that feeling of imposter syndrome for me, but one ha- in terms of the book's reception has been hearing from blind people you know, who have less vision than I do, who perhaps are totally blind from birth. And when I hear those folks say that the book resonates with their own experience, including, you know, the, the fact that blindness is a spectrum, whether you're born, you know, with, with only light perception, even that alone, that, that realization that only like 15% of blind people have no light perception whatsoever. And so this binary sense of blindness is actually pretty much falsehood. Uh, you know, that alone, I think, gives me some sense of whatever agency or uh, comfort. It, it, yeah. it, it, it soothes the imposter syndrome. Right. But it is interesting, like, you talk even about the tensions between, like, the two major blind organizations in the U.S. and sort of how they approach, you know, disability rights. Very different approaches, I guess, to... Yeah, to, yeah. Yeah, like... And and I guess that even just proves that it isn't a binary. Like everybody can have a different opinion on all these different things. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I don't know if it's like too academic to to to, to put in terms of like deconstructing the blind monolith, but, you know, I really think <laughs> yeah, that that's no, like it's... what I was out to do is like, I think, you know, people have this very received and unexamined idea of blindness. It's a binary, right? It's like, you don't see anything. And then there's all these other, other things, right? Like that it's a tragedy that your life is you know, it's worse. And then the, the the place where those two organizations battle is around, I think, and, you know, there's a lot of issues, but I think one of the big ones is about what sorts of accommodations a blind person needs. What kind of help does a blind person need? Yeah. And the NFB, you know, somebody I was talking to yesterday compared them to the Black Panthers, you know, and they are, they're like militant, yeah. self-described militant, radical, like of the blind, for the blind, like, hell no, we will not tolerate the second class citizenship. And, you know, for them, historically, they've gotten in trouble, I think, at least in terms of public perception, by being very quick to reject any kind of accommodation or assistance that for them feels infantilizing or condescending. Like, of course, we don't need that. Who do you think we are? Like, we're not children. Yeah. So it's, it's been interesting for me to kind of, you know, this is the question that that really is the 
gas in the tank of the book for me is like, what kind of blind person am I or, or am I becoming? And and so looking right. to models like that, well, like, am I like the militant hardcore, like get your hands off of me, like I'm fine, I'll figure it out myself, or am I like, you know, it might be nice to like get a little help over here, and 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 that's right. definitely a moving target. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that that I know was a point of contention in the book was. Um, just the the uh, beeping crosswalks, you know, like <laughs> right. the sound at the crosswalks of like one group said we need it and another group said we didn't, and the government was kind of like, well, which is it? Like, yeah. you know, we want to we want to help you here or not, or you know, yeah, but yeah. you've got to tell us what works. So, yeah, um, one of the things that you also wrestle with is working with different adaptive technologies. I mean, Braille in particular was one that like. You were eager to learn it, and a lot of the people that you talked to, um, mostly sighted people, I think, if I recall correctly, from like state organizations and stuff, basically said, "No, you can use screen readers. You don't need the, you know, Braille's mm-hmm. very outdated." You made it a choice to actually learn it. Like having gone through that experience now, what are your thoughts on Braille? Like, is it is it a necessary thing, or were they right about screen readers, or is it somewhere in between? You know, I think it's a personal choice. Like, I don't want to say every blind person needs to learn Braille. There are blind people who would say that. You know, and there's, yeah. of course, there's 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 issues about folks, you know, older folks or or folks who are diabetic who uh, their finger sensitivity, like it's just not an option for some people. And I know productive blind writers and readers who never learn Braille, and their their quality of life isn't worse. Like, I, so I don't, I don't want to sound like a doctrinaire, like Braille sure, hardcore yeah. evangelist. That said, for me, all these assistive technologies, there's this sort of dynamic that happens. Like with the, the cane is a good example, where when I first started using a cane, I was so ashamed of it, but also I just like didn't really feel like I needed it. Like I could still see most of the stuff, but like I also was increasingly like tripping on things or like accidentally kicking people or, you know, toddlers or whatever, and that didn't feel good. So I like felt the need to use it. But it was this like ambiguity, this sort of gray area of like, when do I use it full time? And then eventually, like now I just I wouldn't dream of going anywhere outside my house without one because it's just it's a natural. And Braille is still in that kind of like aspirational point for me, like, it's way more efficient and effective for me to use other tools to read. Yeah. But I force myself pretty much every day to like, at least read a couple lines of Braille, if not, you know, an hour's worth because I do have the sense that, you know, for me as a writer and a reader, like that kind of really close engagement with the text and like a really close reading. Like if I want to read a book, I've like, you know, I think most of your listeners will have read an audio book. Like you can do it, sure. right? And yeah. then text to speech is just like the synthetic version of that where you hear like a screen reader, a, a robot reading you this the audio book, right? And there's there's pluses and minuses to that. That's doable too. But in both cases, you know, there's this experience I heard a blind guy describing his experience reading Braille where he's like, you know, audio disappears. Like, you know, it's just by by its very nature of the medium, like you hear a word and it's no longer there for you to contemplate. Whereas with right. print, you can just stare at that sentence and just think about it. And Braille gives you that kind of an affordance. Like you can really, it's there on the page for you to just contemplate. And that kind of reading is is really, really important to me. And I think as I began to realize that Braille was the ticket to that as I lose more and more vision, it really motivated me to, to do it. But it's so hard. Yeah. You know, and there's cognitive scientists who are studying this. You know, Braille's not a language, it's a code, like Morse code. Right. But kids who learn Braille, there is that sort of neuroplastic moment where your brain just gets wired. Like the reading part of your brain is like, okay, this is the word. And and, and there's a sort of hard wiring that happens when you learn it as a kid that for me, I'm right. just like never going to be as fast as those those folks who learned as kids. 
It's frustrating. Right. But but it's the same thing as like, you know, I've got two little kids and like they pick up an iPad and they just know how to use it. And, you know, the grandparents look at it and like, how do they know how to use that? And it's yeah. like, well, you didn't grow up with it. But yeah, they did. That's just, that's what they have. Like, of course they know how to use that. Yeah. But the interesting thing to me too was like you talked about in the book, hearing your own voice in your head when yeah. you're reading Braille versus hearing somebody else read to you, whether mm-hmm. that's an audio book or a screen reader. And that was interesting. I hadn't ever really thought about how important that is to, mm-hmm. to be able to sit with your own voice and and to hear things in your own voice. Yeah. It's funny. Like I now write with a screen reader on all the time and I have the text blown up huge on my screen, yeah. but I almost never read it without hearing it also, because it's just kind of like, I kind of compare it to like using braces or crutches or something like that. Like it's like, uh, it's helping me along, you know? Right. At first, it was very awkward, and like I, w- I did feel like I was writing in this very Soviet robot-sounding voice, but it's kind of just disappeared. And it's like a little bit like yeah. I, you know, I don't have a mobility disability, so I have to be careful with the analogies. But it's like if you walk long enough with arm braces, you just sort of like they become part of the way you walk, and it disappears. And I think it's, it's like that. Like that's just how I write now, and I'm just so used to the keyboard shortcut to like jump back up to the top of a paragraph and then listen to what I've just written, and then pop and stop, and you know cut a comma. And I'm definitely, I think, more attentive to those pauses. Like, I think I'm a little, yeah. my comma style has changed because I'm like, wait, we need a pause there. And it's like, it is a little bit like of a, like I'm a radio producer with a script, even though it's, even though I'm writing an article for a magazine. Interesting. And how much does the screen reader actually pick up those differences in punctuation? Can you hear, you can hear the difference between commas, period? Like, oh yeah, for sure. Oh, I see. Well, I'm also looking at when it. they're not or, yeah. That, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess I am seeing it usually too. So that it, there's not that much ambiguity. You know, this is another reason why Braille is this sort of aspirational thing for me. Cause I think when the magnified screen that I'm describing is less viable in however many years, you know, cause the, the condition I have is degenerative, right. I can have a digital refreshable braille display which is like basically if you imagine like a kindle yeah. a one line kindle but that you know with with braille that can pop up and then instantly reconfigure itself to the next sentence you know so so i have one of those and i can hook it up to my computer and so then if i'm like is that a period or a comma i can just sort of be listening and reading along with my fingers in the way that right now i'm listening and reading along with my eyes yeah and so i think that's probably how i would do it rather than try to hear the micro you know, a semicolon right. is 0.2 seconds of silence versus a comma. Right. But, but I guess feeling that silence either way, just, you know, yeah, it, it gives you a different rhythm. Mm-hmm. You brought up your, your past career as an audio producer as well and, and a mm-hmm. podcast host. And like, I wonder how much of that experience informs just kind of your day-to-day life now, even of, you know, hearing these screen readers or, you know, so much of your world as a blind person becomes oral yeah. Right. And like yeah. you have that experience working in audio. I'm I'm wondering where those two worlds kind of meet. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I was talking this morning to a friend of mine who's a radio producer and and she's also a writer and she's sort of agonizing about the industry and like maybe I should just go do writing or like what's happening to the podcast industry. And I said to her like I'm, you know, I'm actually kind of medium agnostic, which I sort of surprised myself to hear myself say because I'm I'm very much not. Like I'm obsessed over yeah. the the conventions and the trappings of the audio medium versus, you know, like literary conventions of print, you know, down to <laughs> right. like very visual things. Like when I worked for the Believer magazine, I was obsessed with or you know working at McSweeney's, you know, that that's a company that is obsessed with the sort of visual and tactile affordances of print. But I still feel like it's true that I'm agnostic and I think blindness has made me more agnostic about medium 
insofar as like right now, if I want to read a book, I could read it in Braille. I could read it in audiobook. I could read mm. it in text to speech. Yeah. Um, I could like read it in magnified, you know, not print, but magnified visually. Sure. You know, there are reasons why I might pick one over the other, but I'm kind of just like whatever's most convenient or what's sort of most efficient for that moment. And I'm less precious, I think, about like, this is the audio medium or this is the print medium. And, you know, and it's kind of just like there's this world of what the kindergartners might call the language arts that I'm interested in. Right. And I'm sort of like, it it makes me feel a little bit like a hacker. It's like the publisher has gone to great lengths to like present this beautiful hardcover book. And then I'm just like logging in the back end (laughs) and downloading this EPUB file that I'm like exploding the text and putting it into like, you know, white text on a black background with a yellow highlighter. And it's talking in a robot voice. And like, I don't, I don't have anything to do with the fancy publication process. Right. It is interesting because I came up in the media world as well. And as a TV producer, like that was, you mm. know, very segregated role and just, you know, I'm TV and there was a, there was a digital media team that did the, the online stuff. And I was the broadcast video, you know, mm. very separate worlds. And it is interesting just in the last, I don't know, five years or so, like really feeling like it's okay to swim within all of those worlds. I mean, even just launching this podcast or writing mm-hmm. or like, it's a lot of very similar skill sets to do all these different jobs, I guess. Yeah. Even though I always thought of them as very distinct. Oh, I'm not a writer. I'm a producer. And it's like, oh, actually, I do know how to, I, I write rundowns and I write, you know, outlines that, you know. Yeah. I was just reading, I don't know if this is going to make me sound hopelessly pretentious, but um, <laughs> I was reading this book this morning, uh, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is the sort of like media history of the United States and written in the 80s, but very prescient about the sort of uh, effect that digital media consumption is having on on society today. And he was talking about this era in 18th century America, where you had this tremendous print culture where people were reading pamphlets and books and, sure, yeah. you know, like, you know the, the contemporary equivalent of millions and millions of books. But then also they would spend five hours in the lecture hall listening, you know, to these lectures and then like going home for dinner to the Lincoln Douglas debates and then coming back for like another five hours. And, 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 you know, he makes this really wild observation that like, you know, Lincoln and Douglas and, and, and a lot of these lecturers at the time have this kind of typographical style where they're speaking mm. in the way that print is written, you know, yeah. with these like long, very complex sentences that, you know, as a podcast or radio producer today, you would just be horrified by because, you know, you're supposed to write for the ear right. and, and write in very plain language. But uh, at the time, it was like this print culture and oral culture were the same. And I ver- and I went listening to that and I was listening to Postman's book. It really struck a chord with me because that's sort of how I consume language too, where it's like, it might be a lecture, it might be a book, and but the distance between those two has really collapsed for me. Yeah. I mean, even just thinking about like watching videos with captions on for me, like that was a thing originally developed for, for people that couldn't hear. And now right. like I, I read half the stuff that I see that's a video. Like I don't listen to it just because you know, my kids are around or whatever. Like it's, you know, and, and I guess you touch on that in the book too, of just kind of how a lot of technology that starts as one thing, specifically targeting a certain, you know, disabled community ends up having these ripple effects throughout society. I mean, you talk about the internet may not be here as we know yeah. it because if not for blind people. Yeah. I mean, if you think about captions, I think that by the same token, like I've been talking about text to speech, like the robot voice and like, you can't walk through an American city without hearing Siri talking, your sure. bus is making announcements about where it's going. You know, it's like that automated voice. And now with AI, it's just metastasizing even further. Right. And that, that, that technology originated uh, with, with blind people 
with the problem of blind people accessing print. Yeah. Um, getting back to, to different media for a second, too, uh, I was interested to read uh, that uh, Neil Simon, the playwright, was was your grandfather uh, and that your mother was also a screenwriter. I'm curious, sort of, with both of their influences, sort of how that affected your, your career choices and, you know, how you thought about, I guess, art and media and, and all those different things. Hmm. Yeah, my mom's side is definitely a family of of writers and, you know, oriented towards the theater. And my dad is like a desktop publishing revolution, like kind of like hippie turned dot com, you know, like the sort of like rode the wave of like the San Francisco counterculture. He made like an alternative underground TV show and then ended up working for like USA Network when it was like at the at the dawn of cable TV and then like riding the internet boom. And so I feel like in some ways my career definitely you can see both of those influences where like, you know, I only got my job at the Believer magazine in part, I think, because I could like, you know, code HTML, not that you're coding, but you know, I could, I knew HTML so I could like help build out the website, sure. but I also could like write a funny headline, you know, <laughs> and, or edit an article, uh, you know, and I had the sort of chops in both directions. And, you know, in some ways, like my interest now in writing about like disability and media studies or media history, it's a similar dynamic. Like, I think if you look at my book, there's like a very literary approach to these like emotional aspects of the experience, but I'm also like really digging into these like Neil Postman vibes. Yeah. We talked a little bit about in the beginning about kind of the social justice piece, but one of the things that interested me was just this idea sort of where intersectionality matters when it comes to civil rights Mm. and sort of presenting your whole self, I guess. There were people within the blind community, for example, that um, there were issues with with racial disparities and, you know, not acknowledging that people could be both blind and black or, you know, with the queer experience within the community. But also you talk about sort of the main civil rights legislation in the 60s, leaving out disability for a long time and that that needed to be something that got fought for and eventually became the ADA. Like, what was your take, I guess, going in on sort of where all those different pieces of identity intersect and what did you learn in the process of writing mm. about them? Yeah. I mean, I think I had a pretty naive sense going in of being like, I'm this privileged white guy, and but I'm becoming blind. Yeah. And so my privilege is being stripped away. And this book is going to be a chronicle of that like entrance into marginality. Mm. And there is an element of that. Like I, I, I definitely have noticed ways in which socially my life is not the same, but also like the more I thought about it and the more I researched it, the more I realized like my privilege gets to remain intact uh, a surprising amount. Like I still have all these anxieties about like that, the, the 70% unemployment figure that is really horrifying, you know? And and I, and I know that, you know, and even just like in the last week I've had people say sort of horrifying things to me that basically, you know, if I had to boil it down, it would be like, well, so now you're just like, as a writer, like you kind of just need to tell this story. What people want from you is the emotional tale of going blind. And like, you're going to, for your next book, you should figure out a way to like kind of do that again. Yeah. And, and that just felt so reductive to me. Like, and you know, it's sort of like ableism is everywhere. And so it's not like I'm immune to ableism, but, but as I, as I kind of looked into these histories and met blind people and thought and thought about it and, and talked about it, yeah, it just became so clear to me that that idea of intersectionality, that idea that one's race or class or gender um, or, and so on is not indistinguishable from the other pieces of one's identity and that it's really important to kind of keep those things in your analysis. Yeah. 
And yeah, and then and then just historically, I found these really surprising stories about people who are really passionate about fighting for the rights of blind people who would completely neglect the discrimination and racism uh, and sexism and transphobia and homophobia uh, that were rampant in their organizations. Yeah. And that felt like a really important part of the story to tell. I mean, I feel like when you talk about any marginalized community, there's more overlap in that marginalization, wherever it comes from, whether it's transphobia or homophobia or racism or, or ableism, all of these groups, if they could all band together and realize there's a common cause. And, and I mean, you talk even within the disability community, that's not always possible because I think you made the analogy like somebody with a mobility disability might get a wheelchair and then the state's kind of done with their case. Okay, you've got what you need, whereas a blind mm -hmm. person might need ongoing support and you know training and different things. But- mm -hmm. Yeah, like, how do you see, I guess, different ways for all these marginalized groups to kind of work together for better social justice? Like, you kind of need mm -hmm. everybody, I think, is, is what I took away from it. Yeah, I mean, I think one way that I began to consider, if not answer that question for myself, was in encountering the disability justice movement and understanding how their approach was different from the civil rights approach. Yeah. To, to take the National Federation of the Blind as an example, like they are the sort of like apotheosis of the civil rights approach. You know, it's very, and it is similar to the black civil rights movement, you know, and, and the idea behind a civil rights movement is really a single identity and the focus is on that cause. Right. The problem with it or the risk of it is that then when you start to bring in an intersectional analysis and you say like, well, okay, well, what about the role of women here? Or what about the role of trans people? You're sort of forced in the position of seeing it as diluting the cause. Mm. And I heard that really explicitly from blind leaders who are yeah. saying like, Look, we're not the National Federation of like blind and gay people. Like we're we got to focus on the blindness thing. Like that's what's important. And they'd felt no compunction about that. Like that didn't feel risky for them to to say even even now. It was kind of mind blowing to me. Uh, yeah. and, and disability justice, which which kind of emerges in the Bay Area with primarily disabled people of color and and queer disabled people of color, and also by the way, like like disabilities that weren't traditionally included in the sort of disability activist spaces, so like chronic illnesses and these other sort of disabilities that often kind of fall between the stools a little bit of like state services. Yeah. You um, mentioned you know, one of them that stood out to me of just like feeling sick enough that you were sick all the time, but you could still go to work. Mm -hmm. You know, like it wasn't it wasn't something yeah. that was diagnosable like, okay, you gotta be home, but it was like, I'm just not well. You know, and that that, right. that needs representation too. Right. And I think you see this a lot these days with long COVID sure. where you're, you know, there might be flares, there might be, you know, good days and bad days. And, you know, and, and you hear lots of stories of people like trying to get anything from a, you know, handicap placard for their parking, you know, parking pass to benefits or, you know, SSDI. And the person on, you know, in the position of, of adjudicating that saying like, I don't know, you like walked walked into my office, like you can't be that bad. Yeah. And, and so I think though the disability justice movement is really has kind of given up on the institutional policy kind of approach that the civil rights model takes. And it's really about care networks. And it's about like a really not inward facing, but like a creating a network of disabled people who will support each other. And mm. you know, they it was striking to me to see the word abolitionist used in that context, you know, you know, thinking about like police abolition. But I think the idea is it's like abolitionist in terms of like, even like government support programs. And what they want is to create their own system of support that 
is anti-ableist and 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 you know and it is rigorously intersectional you know so they're very much pushing against the sort of traditional view of disability which is like you know if you asked me in 1990 you know when i was uh 9 or 10 years old like draw a picture of a disabled person right. it would be like a white guy in a wheelchair right. right with no other disabilities and that is i think that's a pretty common image and so this disability justice is really trying to to dismantle that and say like well who who are who are we centering here in the, in in fighting for the rights of disabled people yeah i mean it's interesting that approach too because on the one hand i think it's very pragmatic to just be like okay this is how we're going to get anything done but it also it feels kind of hopeless in a way of just like okay the government's not going to be here. It's not going to support us. We can't count on this. So we have to do it ourselves. Like, I don't know. That's just, that's my reaction to hearing it. It's like, it, it becomes a bootstrap thing because there's no other support there or there's not enough support or the right kind of support. Yeah. I don't know. You could see it as hopeless or you can see it as revolutionary. You know, I mean, I yeah, think okay. that like <laughs> movements, mo like, you know, movements get built on people giving up on the authorities and you know the trust in an overarching authority or a state to give them what they need and and, and building it themselves and I, and so i think the hopeful view of of a, of a disability justice movement is that the people you know power to the people right like the people are going to build what they need yeah fair enough um i wanted to ask you too just because as you described especially um going to the colorado center for the blind where you were blindfolded for large portions of the day and you know had had no vision at all sort of a different visual world that starts to emerge based mm -hmm. on your perception of the world around you through your other senses. It felt to me very psychedelic almost. Totally. And you talked earlier in the beginning of the book about like experimenting with psychedelics as mm -hmm. a kid. Like I'm, I wasn't ever a drug user. I didn't have that experience, but I'm curious just like if those early experiences have it all informed sort of where you are now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, have they informed where I am now? Just in terms of like how you see the world, or just the, um, especially when you when you're not able to see, or you're you're kind of building these worlds in your mind. Yeah, is is psychedelic a fair com uh, a fair comparison? I guess. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, it's it is and it isn't. I think there's like, I mean, you know, and I write about this, and it's a little bit like that moving target of blind identity. Like, there are trippy moments where all the time, even without sleep shades on, like in my house where, and I, I, this is a, a common thing among low vision people. I've heard other people have this experience where I'll be like looking at my phone, for instance, you know, I've got the text blown up really big yeah. and then I'll look up and there'll be this moment where I've been so absorbed in like the little, you know, I've, I've got probably like 5% of what a fully sighted person sees. So then I uh -huh. look up and that 5% is on like a patch of wall that does not have any immediate associations for me. Yeah. And I'm in my kitchen, but I have no idea where I am, which way I'm facing. And it's just so disorienting. And it like, it really, it's almost a feeling of vertigo and I do feel high, you know, I'm like, yeah. whoa, I'm like in my kitchen, but I could be on the space station. Cause like what, where, how did I like, I didn't even move my body and yet I'm like <laughs> floating through space, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that is a very odd and trippy feeling, you know, and under sleep shades for long periods of time, it, it, you know, I think I would say like the, <laughs> the trippiness of it, since, since that's what you're asking, it's like, it's a feeling of synesthesia that is, that can be very wild. Like I remember, yeah, like, like picturing where the wall was, you know, like it's all about mental mapping when you're trying to navigate a space without vision. Right. And, and, and a lot of those mental maps like kind of come alive, but they come alive like in this sort of psychic 
visual way sometimes where you kind of feel like you can see it. And then when I was wrong about a wall and I'd be like, oh, that's not the wall, but my cane would like penetrate it. There was this like cognitive dissonance where it's like, I want there to be a wall there. Clearly there's not. And then there's like this, like, you know, (laughs) morphing misty recapitulation of the entire visible or not visible world, but just the entire tangible world. And uh, that's, that's trippy feeling too. So interesting. The, the last piece kind of, I think to end it, I liked that you talked about blindness causing you to slow down Hmm. and just sort of, you know, knowing that you might get lost when you're out and about, but that you're going to find your way. Like you'll eventually get there. Yeah. A lot of that to me feels like life pre cell phone and just like, (laughs) it's, it's like a, it's a feeling that I want to have again, I guess. And Mm. it almost, it's interesting. Like it feels like a gift that you've been given almost this ability to kind of slow down and just be like, okay, it might take me 20 minutes or it might take me an hour to get somewhere. I've just got to have the experience and I've just got to go with it. Like, yeah. Talk to me about what that experience feels like, because I, I miss that in my life. It's interesting. I mean, I, I don't want to disabuse you of the romance of it, you know, cause I do think there's like, not romance or, you know, I think there's real power to that idea of, you know, like the, the trite way to put it would be like the hippie bumper sticker, like not all who wander are lost, you know, and there's a, <laughs> yeah. but there's like a feel that that is the feeling of it sometimes. Although, you know, it's worth emphasizing that it doesn't always feel so great uh, in the moment. Sure. Um, yeah. Right. Like being lost it's is frustrating. And, yeah, of course. Like this, this week I was, um, my son is in a Lego robotics group. And so he was at school, you know, and the sun is setting so early now that it's winter and I was late. And so I was kind of rushing and then it was dark and his school is sort of on this college campus, like on the edge of this college campus. And I looked at my phone for a second because I got a text. And then like, you know, I had my cane, but I could see like pretty much nothing. Like my night blindness is really bad. And I just got turned around. And uh, it was like the the feeling I was just describing in my kitchen where I was like, okay, I've like kind of totally lost like which way I'm facing. And I did the thing you're not supposed to do where like, you're not supposed to like, if you're blind (laughs) and you're trying to stay oriented and you're like, you know, when you're sighted, and that has you have a moment of disorientation. The the immediate impulse is to like turn around a lot, right? Because you're like, wait, right. okay, oh, I was over, going over there. But if if you're blind, all that does is spin you around and get, and get you wrong. Right. But I think I did yeah, it, yeah. and then I was like, whoa, no idea where I'm facing. I'm late. My son is like waiting for me, and there might be people looking at me, thinking I'm lost, and it's embarrassing. And so it's not like there's like pleasure in that experience. Like that was an uncomfortable experience, but sure. it gave me a feeling of strength that I was had the sort of presence of mind to be like, I can figure this out. There, I hear cars. That's got to be one of two roads. I came from that general direction. So that's got to be that road. So this is this road. I know the school is just further down that road. Found the curb with my cane, saw a street light, like, let's go. And yeah. so it wasn't like fun, but you know, in the same way that, that any kind of like, you know, solving a puzzle can be satisfying. It, it had that feeling of, of, of pleasure and of, uh, victory. Yeah. Eventually, but it's, Eventually. it's frustrating <laughs> in the moment. <laughs> All right. Andrew Leland there. What a great conversation. Really enjoyed talking to him. I think you can hear it there. I think, uh, I think we connected on a lot of stuff and I'm, uh, I'm interested just how much we had in common there. The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight is Andrew's new book. Go check that out. It is a fun book that is both part memoir and part big picture on blind issues, disability issues. 
and kind of justice all around, which I really appreciate. As a reminder, I publish a newsletter every Wednesday and every Sunday. You can go to heathrasala.com slash newsletter to get on the list there. There are free subscriptions available, or if you want to upgrade to a paid membership, you will get early access to this podcast. Every new episode will come to you before it comes to anybody else. heathrasala.com slash newsletter. Go and sign up. I'm at Heath Rosella on social media. I'd love to connect with you over there as well. And I have new shows every two weeks. It will be 2024 the next time we talk. I can't believe it. It's coming. Until then, stay safe. 